and we're looking at the entirety of life as stewards or under God's, uh, under God's supremacy, His sovereignty. And what would every avenue of our life look like if it were lived for God's glory? You know, there's a church in the northern suburbs that has a bumper sticker that they place on all of the different people that come to the church. They place it on their car and they say, live, uh, if I remember right, it says, live as if God was real or is real because he is. Now, see, the reality that I think most of us is, is we acknowledge Jesus as being real in our mouths, but we deny the reality of his rule and his supremacy in the everyday things of life. Some reason we separate our, our Christian life from our work life, from our home life, from our entertainment and things like that. And we, we have this very segmented and regimented life. And Christ wants to be the ruler of all of our lives. He wants the entirety of who, I, who we are. God wants everything. He wants our checkbooks. He wants, he wants our, our workplace. He wants, he wants our, our every, everything about us. He wants to be under His sovereignty. But many of us, though, we have pursued or swallowed the American dream. And we, we actually have our Christian life and we have the American dream. And sometimes we Christianize the American dream. John Piper, the pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minnesota, uh, wrote a book entitled, Don't Waste Your Life. Now, the thesis of his book is that many different Americans, I mean, not just Americans, but American Christians have wholeheartedly swallowed the lie of the American dream. And he challenges that according to biblical truth. Because, see, many of us within this room have lived our life for that day of retirement. We want that house. We want the, the 2.3 children. We want that all of these different things that we are sold rather than understanding what it means to live our lives in, in pursuit of God's glory above all things. I think many of us try to hold the American dream in one hand and the pursuit of Christ in the other. And the reality is, is the two are antithetical to one another when it comes down to it. Now, Piper, in his book, cites many examples of individuals who have pursued the American dream and in so doing so have lost their soul in the process. And then he presents examples of individuals who have given up the American dream and have pursued Christ wholeheartedly with the entirety of their lives. Now, I know many within this room have heard this story, but I, I believe in the subject matter and what we're looking at today, it bears repeating. He talks about a woman named Ruby Eleason. I know that many of you probably have heard this before, but I, I want to say it again. He said this, three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eleason and Lori Edward, Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80. Single all her life, she poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over the cliff, and they were both killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives, driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives 
away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. He goes on to say, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest, February 2000, what a tragedy is. He says, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. The American dream, come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and let the last great work before you give an account to your creator be, I collected shells. See my shells? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. It's the tragedy of a wasted life. I've known way too many people who have wasted their lives for things that have no lasting value. Many of you within this room have lived for that day of retirement. And with the economy tanking as it has, many of the things on which we have depended have been wiped away. Retirement accounts have been drained. Real estate has gone down. I remember, remember what we always to say you, would, you could invest in it always get a return? Real estate. And now that's even gone down. People are losing their jobs, their homes, they're suffering. I can't say for sure, but I believe that this may be from the Lord. I can't say it for sure, but I believe it may well be. Sure, there's a host of mitigating factors in which he works out his divine will, but God has let this happen to show that our real hope must be in him and not in anything else. And if you think this is harsh, go back and read the book of Jeremiah and see what happened when the nation of Israel left God and the punishment inflicted upon them. Not to say that we are this, this nation like Israel was, but God is the God that is sovereign over everything. In some ways, the crash of the economy has been a wake-up call for us. We can discover very quickly if we have lived a wasted life. And if so, we can see how we can alter that pursuit and head in the direction of that which can never be wasted, time given for Him. In our text for today, I'd like us to look at the words of the Apostle Paul. He gives us some motivation on how to live our lives so they won't be wasted. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. We're going to be reading three, uh, or two or three little verses right here, 5.15 through 17. So Ephesians chapter 5, and looking from verse 15 through 17. It's our tradition here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of the Word of God. The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, writes, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you. Lord, help us to understand how we might not give in to the American dream, and we may not waste our lives, but we might invest our lives for the furtherance of your kingdom. Lord, glorify yourself today. Open our hearts to receive this truth, to understand what it means, and to apply it to our lives. No, no matter how difficult it may be. And may your name receive glory for everything that is said and done today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, I'd like to try to break this down a bit, and then I want to examine and bring out some other things, some principles that we can extract from looking at this text. Now, first of all, 
Uh, let's see, the word look carefully is blepite within Greek. It's a present active imperative, which means it's a present command to us. It means to give watch, to give heed, to pay attention to your walk, how we walk. Now, the word walk within the New Testament, actually within all of Scripture, is, is a biblical metaphor used on how one conducts one's life. You've ever heard walk in love, walk in truth, walk in humbly with our God, uh, to, to walk in harmony, all of these different words that we, the Bible has adopted to show how one conducts one's life. And here, we are to be look carefully how we walk. In other words, we're to be careful how we live. Now, we, uh, the word for walk, as I mentioned here, it's a present active, which means we're to presently consider this. It points to continual action, do so over and over again. Continually and carefully consider how we live our lives, not as unwise or foolish, but as wise. Now, unwise here is the Greek word asophos. comes from the word sophia. Sophia uh, is the Greek word for wisdom. And here it's the opposite of wisdom. And it means that don't be unwise. Now, wisdom within Scripture usually comes from experience. That's why those who are older have a lot more life experience. Hopefully, the, the older that you get, the wiser you get. That's not always true. <laughs> That's not, I don't know what to think about that. Um, it's not always true. Because you can be a fool and be 100 years old. And you know, I've met some people that are great fools. They've been in church their entire lives. And I say that to their shame. But we are to be, not to be unwise, but wise, which means that we are not to, we are to pay attention to our lives, learn from the experiences we've gone through, and then live accordingly. Now, in verse 16 here, we are to be making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, the, the word, the use of time, that little phrase there, actually means to buy up at the marketplace. And with the meaning, or it, it, it's the meaning like seizing the opportunity, buy it back. Take it back. Don't let it go beyond and skip it and don't think about it any longer. Think about it. Evaluate it. Learn how to apply this to your life. To buy up the time. Now, within Scripture, there are several different words within the Greek language that are used for time. Two of the probably the most prevalent words are chronos, where we get chronology, and kairos. Now, chronos is a a word that literally means the measuring of time, day, hour, so on and so forth, literal measurements of time. Kairos, though, is much more about the opportunity within time itself, taking advantage of the opportunity that we have. So it's looking at time in that way, not the literal measurement way, but in looking for opportunity. We are to buy back the time, to use this opportunity that we have, the time that we have left. Because the word refers to the brevity of life and opportunity, referring to the diligent use of the opportunities before us. Now, why do we need to buy back or redeem time? Because the days are evil. The word for evil, poneros, right here it means it's an active evil. It's understanding it's going on right now, that the world in which we live is fallen. And that the world system and that, is, that shapes a lot of the values of our culture is also fallen. And it is anti-God. It doesn't help us in our relationship with God. So the days are now presently bad. And what else are we supposed to do? Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the, world, what the will of the Lord is. Now here, this do not be foolish is also an imperative. It's a command. Don't be stupid. 
And it's a command not to be foolish, which means without understanding, senseless. It's the understanding of continuing in folly. Don't do it. Pay attention. Stop what you're doing and change direction. Don't be without sense, but understand, which is another imperative here. Understand and act to think about it. It's the ability to bring things together and see them in relation to one another. The saints are encouraged to make use of their reasoning power. And what are they to understand? The will of the Lord. And the will of the Lord is found within the word of God as the people are being led by the spirit of God. What is God's will for you in the present time? To evaluate that, to think about it. What does God want me to do now with the time that I have left? Don't be dumb. Try to live for God's glory. See, that's what God's will, greater will is, is that you'll live in such a way that He will receive glory. That you would be so filled up and satisfied with God that God becomes glorified in your life. To walk in wisdom. To live skillfully. Now, how do we live wisely and not waste our life? Well, it begins by this. Don't waste your life involves looking at time as a gift not to be taken for granted. That's the first point that I want us to understand, is using our time, the opportunities that we have left, is realize that the time that we have is a gift not to be taken for granted. Moses wrote about this, and the praise team quoted this verse today from Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. It's a Psalm of Moses. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And Moses said, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we might get, or we may get, a heart of wisdom. To think about it, that time is a gift. We must remember that we're a flower in the field that passes away, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And our days are just like a shadow. We die and our bodies return to dust. God has determined the, year of, the time of our birth and of our death. Our days are numbered. And this precious life we have cannot be taken for granted. And not only does wasting your life not just mean looking at time as a gift not to be taken for granted, but it's, it's also not to be hoarded either. See, all too often today we've been addicted to my time. And we hoard time, taking it away from those who deserve it. See, time is a gift to be given. But what does the Bible say, or who does the Bible say that our time is to be given to? Because today, time is the most valuable commodity that many of us have. We never have enough of it. See, our time is to be given, first of all, to the Lord. He deserves our first fruits. That doesn't mean, as some have said, that it has to be the first thing in the morning. I mean, for some, I I do believe that that's your best time. It means giving God your best. And for some of you, the first few hours in the morning are definitely not your best. All right? It's your best time is after your coffee <laughs> or later in the day. But don't just wait till you're at the end of the night when you're just strung out and your mind is just filled and all you want to do is sleep. But give God your best time. And I can give you a bevy of different verses that talk about how we should be giving our time to God, taking up our cross daily, or even seeking Him in the early morning as the psalmist did in Psalm 5.3, and this longing for God, this longing for communion with God. And then there are times within the, the biblical account that we see different individuals scheduling r- regular time to seek God. Daniel, in the book of Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, he regularly had three different times of prayer set aside. 
The same with Peter. We can see that some of the apostles kept this daily structure of consecrated and continual prayer, regular prayer. So we need to give our time to the Lord. We need to take the time to commune with God. Jesus himself did that, and I guarantee that Jesus' schedule, though it was back in the ancient Near East, that it was, <laughs> he got he so busy that he was surrounded by crowds, and the apostles couldn't handle them all, and it said they couldn't even eat. That he would have to withdraw to lonely, desolate places to commune with God. But he would, leaving us an example that we are to commune with God. I'm reminded of the great 19th century saint, man of faith and prayer, George Mueller, who said about this in his time with God. He said, The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. Great words. See, we're a little bit like dolphins. We live in the world of the sea, but we need to come to God just like a dolphin comes to the surface to find our breath. Our communion with God must become the oxygen to our souls. Now, we we know that we need to be taking time for the Lord, but who else are we supposed to be taking time or giving our time to? First, next one is our loved ones. Pretty obvious. And that's two right there. It should be right underneath that. The first is our family and our church. We know the difficulty of finding time for our family. And we know the disastrous consequences of neglecting our families. Men neglecting wives and children and vice versa. As Harry Chapin wrote in his song, Cats in the Cradle, the father continually promises son that he will spend time uh, together in the future, but he never does. And when he gets older and wants to spend time with his son, his son promises the same thing. It never happens. We're to be with our families. We're to nourish our marriage relationship as well as our relationship with our kids, which means that we need to learn to say no to things, and that's not easy. See, we can far too easily deceive ourselves. We allow people to pile things onto us. We take things onto ourselves, rationalizing that we can let our other relationships go because they, quote, they understand. The reality is that there are times when this happens, but the problem becomes when the exception at some point becomes the rule. We must take time for our families, wives and children, making sure that we are delighting, gentlemen, in the wives of our youth. We're living with our lives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We're, in other words, loving our wives as Christ loved the church. We're also to love our children and grandchildren. We're to teach our children and live with them. The book of Deuteronomy talks about this, that we're to be teaching our children diligently the truths of God. shall talk of them when we sit in our house, when we walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Taking the time to teach our children and children obeying your parents. But it also means taking time for our church family, as the author of Hebrews wrote. And let us consider how to stir one another, up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the coming of Christ. See, we need to be in worship together in intimate fashion in small groups. That's where we really share the intimacy of our lives. And if you would do one thing this year outside of attending the worship service, we would encourage you, plead with you to join a small group. Small groups are not one thing that we do among other things, but the heartbeat whereby we come together to discuss what life is about and how we can encourage one another to live for God's glory. Now we know that we're to spend time with the Lord, 
that we're to spend time with our loved ones, with our physical family and our church families, but we're also to spend time in our labor, in labor. Now, the book of Exodus, I mean, we see this actually established within creation. God himself worked. He worked six days and rested one. We are to labor. Did you know when work was created, I used to think when I was younger, that work was a result of the fall? Because work wasn't fun. But did you realize that work was established before the fall? Adam was placed within the garden to tend and take care of it. God has created us to work. There will even be working in heaven. And some people have said, hey, if there's work in heaven, it's not heaven. But it's not that kind of work. It's a delighting work. We are created to work, to work six days and to rest one. God created us to work. We are to spend our time working. But what does this work look like? It means earning a living or even taking care of your home, etc. For men, this is easy to understand. For a woman, it's a little bit difficult. A wife or mother's labor is never ending. How does one cease from labor with your children? My wife and I have discussed this before, and it's not easily settled. But in in Judaism, I I started researching and saying, what did Jewish wives and mothers do? How do they observe the Sabbath from all their other activities? And it seems that the predominant fact is, is they do everything the day before. They prepare the meal the day before. They get it all ready so that they themselves can rest. And they do minimal amounts of just cleaning up, not doing the laundry, not doing anything else. It is a day of rest. It is a day of rest. Remember, work six, rest one. We're to rest or have leisure. Leisure literally means free time for enjoyment. That's the next point in your notes. We're to have time for leisure. Now, this is where we get our concept of rest. We don't have... I mean, how many here need rest? Put your hand up. (laughs) Because we're so busy. Incredibly busy. We're just overwhelmed with our daily responsibilities. I mean, we all feel that way. Now, the way I see it, it comes down to this, because I've heard people make excuses on why they don't observe a Sabbath. And I know I've struggled with this. I haven't been perfect in my own life. This has been a continual area for my own self. But I've come down to see it's one of two things on why we don't Sabbath. Number one, either God's a liar and He doesn't understand our responsibilities and schedules. Or number two, we're disobedient and refuse to make adjustments. I don't see any other option. It's one of those two. Some of us Sabbath, but we don't spend that time for God. We use it for everything else we couldn't fit into the week. We filled our weekend so full that we don't have time for other stuff. Now, the problem centers on how we look at time. What does the Bible say about time? We must be careful of practicing what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery which means we only look at time through the lens of today. We have to go back and look and be challenged to look at the Bible through the lens of time past, especially with what the Scripture says about time. Because if we don't, we are then in danger of importing our concepts of time and making the Scripture mean things that it never meant. We let our culture shape the direction and the truth of Scripture rather than let the Scripture influence and shape the direction of our lives. So we have to be very careful. See, we need to look at time from the horizon of today, but look at time also through the horizon of Scripture and see it through that lens. Because today, time is heavily segmented and rigid. 
We're driven by the clock. And because of that, the Bible becomes a book on time management more than it does about life-giving truth. We must look past our own horizon, looking at time from the biblical framework. And to do that, we must look backwards. What is time, after all? Such a thought seems ludicrous today to us in the 21st century West, but it is notoriously difficult to understand, for it goes way beyond 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, and 168 hours in a week. See, time is difficult because it's measured differently in different cultures. In the United States, we are what we call time-oriented. The service starts at 9.30, it's to start at 9.30. It's to get out at a certain hour, it's to get out at a certain hour. We are driven by the clock. Everything about it, it's about time, being on time, precision, punctuality, and productivity. But in the ancient East, in Latin cultures, this is still remains. In many African cultures, time is entirely different. People there are what we call event-oriented. Now, let me give you an example of this. When I was a youth pastor within the city of Chicago, I had a girl in my youth ministry who was Guatemalan. And she was having her quinceañera. For those of you who aren't familiar with that, it's like a coming out party. It's also a religious ceremony showing that this girl is considered to be an adult within that greater community. And it has a religious nature to it as well. And I was asked as the pastor to bring the blessing. My wife was asked to be the soloist in the affair. And it started at noon. At least that's what we were told. And that meant the sound check was at 11.30. So we get there at 11.30. There's hardly anybody there. Maybe one or two people just milling around. Fifteen minutes goes by. Nothing's going on. We're trying to do our sound check. We actually had the sound person there. We kind of did it ourselves. We got done. Twelve o'clock. We're seated, ready to go. Two people walk in. Twelve fifteen. Four or five more walk in. Twelve thirty. Seven or eight more walk in. Twelve forty-five. Five more. By one o'clock, the crowd is gathering. One fifteen. One thirty. Everybody shows up about 1.45, and the event ends up starting at 2. Now, it was slated to start at noon. But in the Latin culture, for those who are from my Latin background, you can testify to this. You're laughing as I'm even saying this now. is because it's about the event, not about the exact time. And this is carried on in different cultures. And it's about being with people. It's about the event, not the precision of time. And for those of us who are really driven by the clock, we're like, what is going on? I'm, I'm losing my time here. You're wasting my time. How can you do this to me? But in that culture, it's all about the event and about the relationships. Relationships trump productivity. See, that concept of time is probably more akin to the Bible's understanding of time. Time was not so regulated in the Bible's time as it is now. They weren't looking at time according to the hour, minute, or second. They did measure time, as the Bible clearly shows, but not like today. Time was much more fluid and flexible in how it was conceived. But all this changed with the invention of the clock. See, no one knows who exactly invented the clock. We know that the Egyptians and Babylonians were toying with various sundials, and some Asians and Egyptians were toying with water clocks. And the first mechanical clock appears to have started in and around the 13th century. But early clocks were extremely large, cumbersome, and inaccurate. Clocks in the home didn't appear until around 1450 A.D., and that was because of the invention of the spring-driven clock. Suddenly, people could have clocks in their home. The clock continued to gain ground, especially during the time of the Industrial Revolution. And with the rise of labor and increased desire for productivity, men, women, and children were regularly putting in 10 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Suddenly, productivity and time became to be united for good and for bad. Working that much time without rest or break is disastrous and destructive. 
The clock is a merciless master, and fiscal productivity must be measured up against the complex nature of human dignity. We are not created to be robots, but are people made in God's image that need and require rest. We are emotional and relational beings that require food, nourishment, sleep, love, and a whole host of other things. But with the Industrial Revolution, we were scaled down from emotional and relational beings whose worth and value is determined by God to producers whose value is determined solely by productivity. It wasn't long before such thinking made its way into the home, permeating the family and the church. Children's and parents measure themselves by productivity and accomplishment, and the language of productivity and money has become attached to time, which is why we talk of time as a commodity. Time is money. Spending time. Wasting time. Not worth my time. See, we're created to work and rest. God has called us to work because work was established before the fall. But we are also called to rest. And with the creation of the, cro- the clock, the proliferation of pleasure opportunities before us, we started measuring time with more precision. We had to have that fun time brought in. Productivity, precision, and pleasure came to replace community, service, and sacrifice, as well as Sabbath. We started to live lives dedicated to making us happy, not holy. And we've begun to work for the weekend, for my time. But did you know, such thinking, while popular in part and parcel of the American culture, is not biblical. In Vitold Rubsinski's essay, Waiting for the Weekend in the Atlantic Monthly, in August of 1991, we get a fantastic and comprehensive look into the history of our modern weekend. He wrote, The American half-holiday didn't become common until the 1920s, but its expansion was more rapid. Often, the weekend arrived in a full-day configuration. The first factory to adopt a five-day week was a New England spinning mill in 1908, expressly to accommodate its Jewish workers. The six-day week had always made it hard for Jews to observe the Sabbath, for if they took, off, took Saturday off and worked Sunday, they risked offending the Christian majority. Moreover, as work patterns became increasingly formalized through union agreements, many Jews did not have a choice a state affairs that threatened the Sabbath tradition. The five-day week, and both Sunday and Saturday were holidays, offered a convenient way out, and it came to be supported by Jewish workers, rabbis, and community leaders, and some Jewish employers. At first, the five-day work week was common in only three industries, the needle trade, building construction, printing, and publishing. And in a few isolated cases, employers voluntarily adopted the five-day week. The earliest and most notable use of this was, curiously enough, Henry Ford, a staunch anti-unionist. In 1914, Ford reduced the daily hours in his plant from 9 to 8. In 1926, he announced that henceforth his factories would also be closed all day Saturday. His rationale was more business-minded than anything else because he noted that an increase in leisure time would support an increase in consumer spending. In other words, he knew if he gave them a day off, they'd want to buy a car. So they would go different places. This was a prescient view, for the weekend did indeed become associated with outings and pleasure trips. But in 1926, that was still in the future. And Ford was alone among the businessmen in espousing the concept of weekend. He was criticized by the steel industry and and all of the different manufacturers. What finally consolidated the two-way weekend as we know it was not altruism or activism or paradoxically prosperity. It was the Great Depression of 1929. Shorter hours came to be regarded as a remedy for unemployment, of all things. Each person would work less, but more people would have jobs. And just before the Depression, the work week stood for uh, many at close to 50 hours. 
Later, as a result of work sharing, it fell to 35 or less. And eventually, in the New Deal legislation embodied in the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, mandated a weekly maximum of 40 hours to begin in 1940. Although the act was mute about the length of the workday, once the eight-hour workday became customary, the five-day week ensued. That's the history of the weekend. So we can see that a weekend is a fairly modern invention. And the concept of time has become one of precision, production, and a flurry of extracurricular activity that we have deemed to be important in our lives. Indeed, our leisure is beginning to far outweigh our labor and even the time we spend with our loved ones. We've become slaves to the schedule, trying to do all of these good things and failing to do the best things in the process. We forfeited as we look for achievement and production while sacrificing our being in the process. Philip Kennison, in his book, Life on the Vine, tells the story of being at a cabin that had a small wood plaque that hung on the cabin wall. It said, time is slow here, a friend rather than a master. It's a fantastic insight. See, we must reject our modern-day notions of time and adopt a more biblical framework in which to live. Not that we are going to change how we live in the midst of world based on productivity, But as long as we are walking with God and seeking to have His will on it, we will be able to live unhurried and peaceful lives in the midst of a product-addictive world. Kinnison, again, in this fantastic book, says this, Going faster. If what is said above accurately characterizes our culture, then we can perhaps understand more clearly why our culture places such an enormous premium on speed. Because we have more and more things we want to do with our time, We have less and less time to do the things we have to do. Once we regard time as a scarce resource, we then feel the pressure to do whatever needs to be done as quickly as possible. As a result, we've become a society characterized by its love affair with time-saving devices. Every year, hundreds of products flood the market that promise to save us precious minutes. But what happens to all the time we ostensibly save with all these wonderful gadgets? Don't these devices merely enable us to cram those few extra moments with further attempts to justify our existence by being even more productive? In strange and subtle ways, therefore, many of these devices that were supposed to liberate us instead now have contributed to our further enslavement. Rather than having more time, we feel as if we actually have less. We're slaves to time. I mean, many in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. You feel a slave to your schedule. And it's imperative that we adopt a biblical understanding of what time is in order that we don't waste our life running from one thing to the next and trying to cram everything in. Instead of being liberated, we feel imprisoned. We must jettison much of our modern-day thinking, and that will not happen overnight. It will take time, forgive the pun. And it begins with seeing time as something to be guided by God. That's That's what we're talking about within this text making best use of the time for God. Our time needs to be guided by God. If you don't want to waste your life, realize that time is something to be guided by God. It begins in God having God guide it. That doesn't mean we don't plan, we don't work, we don't have schedules or etc. But it does mean evaluating the things that fill up our time and getting rid of the things that are really not beneficial. And what is not beneficial? Outside of everyday work, we look at it this way. Is it stealing from my time with the Lord? Is it stealing time with my loved ones? And most often this involves some form of leisure that we have deemed to be important or some type of opportunity for us or our children. But most 
Often, what we deem to be an opportunity for our families is nothing more than what we want to do, not what we have to do. But begin by building what you have to do and then add the wants. If a want is interfering with a have, then you need to get rid of the want, no matter how important one or many of the family members deem it to be. Our time must be guided by God, and we must buy back the time and use it wisely, which means that we are to bring it or to use it to bring God glory. Now, how often have other things interfered with living our lives for God's glory? See, making sure that we don't waste our life begins with repenting of wasted opportunities. That's where it begins. If you want to understand and how to use your time for God's glory, first of all, it begins with repentance. Because we have adapted the world's view of time. That's not the biblical view of time. We have to use that lens in which to understand. Because it's driving us. It drives our relationship with God. We have a one-minute manager in our communion with God. We're trying to fit God within it rather than let God define it. God, forgive us. Repenting of wasted opportunities. This is where we, we must make sure that we're using our time wisely. Paul wrote about this to the Colossians too. He said, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. See, God uses you in your everyday life in ways that you will never know to speak to people about who Jesus is. Because people are reading your life. They're reading your life. They're watching you mess up. They're watching what you do in those days that you don't feel good. They're looking to see if the reality of your life matches the reality of your talk. The words that you say, I mean, are you walking what you're talking? Because they're looking at every aspect of your life. We must use our time to live for God's glory. We, when we live for God's glory... It means delighting in Him and the things He has given us, then we become satisfied in Him. And as John Piper has so eloquently put it and said so many times, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. When we find our satisfaction in Him, that permeates every aspect of our life. We tell other people about Him and His salvation made available by Jesus dying on the cross for their sins. And we show them by our lives that God is real. When we live our lives in such a way that God is real, because He is, although many Christians don't live that way, other people take notice. They want to know who Jesus is and are drawn to Him accordingly. Next, making sure that we don't waste opportunities, it means this, releasing your guilt toward God. I know that many in this room, you carry unbearable guilt of time lost. Wasted opportunity of not getting the things done. Whether, whether you're a stay-at-home mom and you don't get the, that laundry done or don't get the dishes together or the kids, something's wrong there or, or we have so many different activities and we, we don't get it done day after day. And for those who are women, you're looking at Proverbs 31 going, I'd like to strangle that woman. We have to say to release the guilt because God's grace covers even that. That Christ even died for those wasted opportunities that we have. And when we don't hold it all together, He's there and He gives grace. Release your guilt to God. See, it's not your value is not based on your productivity. It's not the sole determinant on whether or not God loves you or whether you are valuable in His sight. Your value is determined at the cross, not the counter. And the price he paid was the life of his son. And it's by grace through faith we have been saved. Not a result of works. So that no one can boast. 
bask in grace. Don't continue to walk around in guilt. You've messed up. Confess it. Repent of your sin. And then get back to doing what you're supposed to be doing. You can't get that day back. It's gone. But you can live this moment better than you did in the past. Now, not wasting your life also involves remembering the days are evil. The days we have are fleeting. One day it will be your last. Don't live with regret at the opportunities you missed. And don't forget the days that we have are evil and are not going to help you out. It's going to war against you. It's not going to be an easy life. For some reason, we think it's all going to be fine and dandy. But we're going to have struggles. We must not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And how this is done through the transformation of your mind is is as you wash it with the Word of God. Remember that you're in a war, not a wonderland. Disney World isn't reality. Its job is to help you escape from reality. It wants to make you happy, not holy. Many of us are too busy trying to pursue happiness, not holiness. And we're pursuing our happiness in other things outside of God. Pursue your happiness in God and you will be made holy. Pursue your happiness outside of God and you forsake holiness. Use the time you have left. Make sure that you are also redeeming your time for Christ. Use the time that you have for God's glory. No matter what you do, love the Lord. Your loved ones, do your labor and leisure to God's glory, as Paul wrote. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I've often asked myself this question, how do I eat to the glory of God? I don't remember hearing a sermon on that. How do I drink to the glory of God? How do I have a cup of Starbucks to the glory of God? Because I'll gladly do that. Now, I found a great article by John Piper entitled, How to Drink Orange Juice to the Glory of God. He wrote, some of you then asked the practical question, well, how do you eat and drink to the glory of God? Say, orange juice for breakfast. One answer is found in 1 Timothy 4, 3-5. Some forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. He says, orange juice was created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe the truth. Therefore, unbelievers cannot use orange juice for the purpose God intended, namely as an occasion for heartfelt gratitude to God from a true heart of faith. But believers can, and this is how they glorify God. Their drinking orange juice is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. The word of God teaches, that the ju- teaches us that the juice and even our strength to drink it is a free gift from God. 1 Corinthians 4.7 and 1 Peter 4.1. 11. The prayer is our humble response of thanks from the heart. Believing this truth in the word and offering thanks in prayer is one way we drink orange juice to the glory of God. The other way is to drink lovingly. For example, don't insist on the biggest helping. This is taught in the context of 1 Corinthians 10.33. I try to please all men in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they too may be saved. And again, be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. Everything we do, even drinking orange juice, can be done with the intention and hope that it will be to the advantage of many that they may be saved. Never thought of drinking orange juice that way, did you? So you can do this with anything. You can even watch football to the glory of God. Now I've got the men's attention. See the players as image bearers. Take the time to talk to your kids, spouse, or friends, and even talk about think about providence. See, God controls the outcomes of our lives. See, lastly, not wasting your life means recognizing God's plan for our time. 
See, what's God's plan for our time? It's for us to give him glory, for us to find our satisfaction in him. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. When we're most filled up with God, God is glorified in us. People see that, our satisfaction, that we have rest in him. Outside of the, our Lord himself and his apostles, one of the greatest examples of living life to God's glory would be found in the great American uh, 18th century Puritan uh, theologian Jonathan Edwards. Just before his 20th birthday, he wrote 70 resolutions by which he lived the rest of his life. He recognized the reality that time was short and not to be wasted. And here are a few of his resolutions that I believe we can do well to apply to our own lives. Hopefully, they will be a source of inspiration to you, not condemnation. He wrote, number five, resolve never to lose one moment of time, but improve it in the most profitable way possible. Possibly I can. Number six, resolve to live with all my, my might while I do live. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolve, number nine, to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Number 17, resolve that I will live so I, I shall wish I had done when I come to die. He understood that regret is a terrible, terrible thing to have come to the end of your life and have all that regret. He said, I'm not going to do that from now on. I don't want to have regret at the end of my life. Number 22, resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. I pray that each one of us might look at time differently. We might adopt a biblical framework of time and use it for God's glory, making God the priority and guider of our schedules. I mean, we talk about God being the Lord of life, but He's the Lord of your time. If I were to look at your, your schedule, your calendar, what would I see? What would God see most of all? Is God the Lord of your time? Don't waste it your life, meaning it's investing your life for the sake of eternity, adopting God's view of time, and then living it to His glory, living it in such a way that you find your satisfaction in Him and in Him alone. Because when doing so, when you find your satisfaction in Him, God is glorified in you. May we all be resolved to live for God's glory, not wasting our lives, knowing that as we live for Him and find our satisfaction in Him and not in sin or the things of this world, God receives glory and we grow in joy. May we not waste our lives nor squander the opportunities that God presents before us. But may we, may we continually grow into the image of the divine Son of God who died for us and gave himself for us for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Father, we've heard a great deal of information today. And Lord, we look at the, we stand at the precipice overlooking another week. We know that the realities that await us on Monday morning. We know the pressures as we try to give our time to things that are worthwhile, that have eternal value. Lord, help us to adapt your view of time. Help us to look at time as fluid. Help us to look at it as a gift not to be taken for granted. And help us to use it for your glory, living each day in and out for your glory. Lord, help, help us to even adopt a view of rest. Lord, we know that there are many good things out there that are, that are trying to take our time, things we want to invest in, things we want our, our children to be in. But Lord, some, so often the things that we think are our priorities ended up just 
pulling us away from who you are. Lord, help us to jettison, to abandon such thinking. And help us to radically reorient ourselves to you. May you be the center. May you be the heartbeat. May you be the priority of our lives. And may, may your name, your word, your spirit be evident in the fabric of our daily lives. As people see the tapestry of who we are, may each thread, visual strand of who we are make up that great tapestry for your glory that people can see the picture of Christ in every aspect of our lives. Lord, may you receive glory and may we increase in joy to the glory, honor, and praise of your awesome and holy name. In Jesus' name we pray.